If you would, turn with me to John chapter 12. Just as a reminder, we've seen Jesus raise a man from the dead, Lazarus, and then that was the, that was the last straw for the religious leaders, for the people in charge. That was it. Uh, they made plans to put him to death. They were worried that Jesus was going to usurp their authority, bring Romans down on their heads, and so... Uh, Jesus retreats. It's not yet his time. And actually, we're going to pick up in, I'm going to read starting in 1155 just to give us a sense of the, of the context. And so let's give attention to the reading of God's word. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And they were looking for Jesus. And saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let let them know so that they might arrest him. Therefore, Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany. Let's pause for a second. You notice uh, it's Passover time. Every other point in the gospel when Jesus has been under threat, whether the authorities want to arrest him, whether the crowds want to grab him, he's always gotten away, and John has always said, because his hour had not yet come. And now that this Passover is here, And now that the crowds are looking for him out of curiosity, now that the leaders are looking for him out of animosity, the sun is beginning to set on Jesus' day. His, His daylight is up and the night is about to come. And so in light of all that, at the beginning of chapter 12, the very first word in the Greek is therefore. In light of the curiosity and the animosity, Jesus shows up. He comes to Bethany, about two miles away from Jerusalem, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away 
and believing in Jesus. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a God who speaks, that you are not silent. And now, Lord, we pray that, uh, that you would bless the reading and the hearing and the preaching of your word. Lord, that it would be effective, uh, that your sheep would hear your voice and follow you. Teach us, Lord, what it means to be devoted to you, to love you, to worship you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I say the word worship, what, what mental images does that conjure up in your mind? Uh, when I say worship, what are the first few things you think of? Maybe, maybe you think of this place, this room, or some other place. Maybe you think of, of raised hands and closed eyes. What do you think about when you hear worship? The Bible uses really two sets of words to talk about our worship when it says worship either in the Old Testament or the New Testament. The first word and the word that is used most often deals with the posture of our body. Uh, so both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, uh, the word worship means to, to bow down, to prostrate yourself. And of course, you can get the sense of what that means, right? To, to lower yourself before whatever it is you are worshiping, whatever it is you're exalting. And that's where most of the words for worship fall. There's a second set, though, that deal with different aspects of worship. And we could say that if the first talk about the posture of our body, maybe the second set talk about the posture of our hearts or the posture of our attitudes. And there are words like fear and serve. Um, so the Bible, when it talks about worship, talks about body and soul. And it talks about it in a way that reflects the inward heart reality, right? Even the posture of your body, even bowing down before something, throwing yourself on the floor in front of someone or something, shows or hopefully reflects the, uh, the inward reality of your heart. And it's this, it's this principle. We worship what we adore. We worship what we adore. And to put it another way, we bow down, both inwardly and outwardly, uh, to what means the most to us, to what really has hold of our affections, what really has hold of our hearts. And what I'm about to say, I'm, I'm going I'm to make a statement that I believe the Bible says over and over again, but it, it challenges common, uh, it, it challenges the culture that we've grown up in. If you're like me, uh, you grew up bred on Disney theology, um, this, this statement is going to challenge that idea, uh, that theology. And it's this. We are always at worship. Uh, we, are, we are actually not made to find true meaning and satisfaction within ourselves. That, the statement right there, even the fact that I say we are made, is challenging enough to our, uh, to our world but it goes a step further. Not only are we made, we are built, we are intended for a purpose, but that purpose, we are meant to find our meaning, our satisfaction, and our purpose outside of ourselves. We're built to worship. Uh, and we are always at worship. We are always bowing down to someone or something. 
right? It's like Bob Dylan saying, you got to serve somebody. Whether you're a heavyweight champion or a, or a hoity-toity socialite with a string of pearls, you got to serve somebody. You always got to serve somebody. And so we're always bowing down to someone or something. We worship whatever has our hearts. It's that sense of awe. It's what we're made to do. A human being has to find ultimate meaning outside of themselves. And so we are made to worship, fear, adore something outside of ourselves, and we're constantly doing it. And your life and my life is a reflection of what we worship. How can I tell? How do I know? How do I know what it is that I'm worshiping? Well, the old saying, right, is that if you want to know what someone worships, you can look at their pocketbook, look at their bank statement. Where does most of their money go? Think of the other commodity that we have, uh, time. Where do you spend your time? If you want to know what it is that you're worshiping, look at how you spend your time and how you spend your money. And it all kind of arrives at this point that I think is demonstrated so clearly in this passage that what and who we worship is revealed by what we do and say. That our objects of worship are revealed by our lives. And so right here in this passage, you have two very different responses to Jesus. You have a picture of true worship, and you have pictures of false worship. And, they're really, and they really butt heads with each other. And so first, let's take a look at what true worship looks like. And of course, it's Mary. Um... This is six days before the Passover. Jesus comes back to Bethany. Uh, he knows Mary and Martha and Lazarus well. Uh, this, is a, this is a home where he is welcomed. These are his friends, we found out in John chapter 11. Uh, we saw them, we see them earlier in Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of Luke. And so Jesus is making his way towards Jerusalem. He spends uh, the night before uh, his triumphal entry in Bethany. And this is actually the house he keeps going back to. Uh, and this is where Lazarus lives, and so they give a dinner for him. It's, a, it's an honor, right? It's, this is an honored guest coming in. It's probably several different families who have gathered together for this dinner. Uh, and it's in the midst of this dinner. Martha is serving Lazarus as they're eating with Jesus. They're, they're reclining probably on one arm uh, in Roman fashion uh, and eating with the other arm, but they're reclining sideways at a table, which... You know, for those of us who sit at tables and chairs, seems really uncomfortable and odd, but that was the way you did it, especially at a feast. And so there they are reclining at table, and then, and then Mary comes in, and she does something astonishing and unthinkable. And not only does she, she would not probably have been at the same table with them, um, but she actually almost interrupts dinner to worship Jesus. And we can learn a few things about the beauty of true worship and what true worship looks like from Mary's example. The first one is this. True worship is rooted in love. True worship, real worship, is rooted in love. These people are Jesus' friends. They love him, uh, and he loves them. And so it bears saying that you cannot truly worship what you do not truly love. Worship will always be difficult for you if, you, if your heart is not in, us, in it. Uh, we could say it would be impossible. You cannot truly worship what you do not truly love. 
Why does Mary worship Jesus in this way? Why does she adore Jesus? Well, think about what he has done for her. Not only is he her friend, but uh, not only has he visited her home and taught her the truth, but he's raised her brother from the dead. And so Mary is beginning to grasp something that the other male disciples don't yet see. Uh, and so we can take an aside here and say that if you believe, if you believe that the Bible is a chauvinistic book, uh, that, it, that it denigrates women uh, and elevates men, then you're not paying attention. You don't read the Gospels, and you don't see how Jesus treats and interacts with women. And you don't see what a prime place women have in the Jesus story. Mary gets it. She's, she's rushing to the Lord's feet to adore and honor him. The male disciples, they will have to be almost coerced to wash one another's feet. And the one who will show them how to do it is Jesus himself, the Lord of creation. The, the male disciples will flee. The female disciples will be the last at the cross. The female disciples will be the first ones at the tomb. Uh, and it is their word that will get the, the male disciples out of hiding. Uh, and so Mary's worship here is a response to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. That's what true worship is. It is true worship is rooted in love that is a response to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. As John will say in his first letter, we love because he first loved us. Loved us. Here's the second thing. True worship is rooted in love. True worship is humble. You might even say true worship is humiliating. Remember that that, that word for worship means to bow down. It means to put yourself in a low position. Uh, Matthew and Mark, when they talk about Mary's anointing of Jesus, they talk about her anointing his head. And there was probably enough perfume that she anointed his whole body, maybe even beginning at the head or working to the feet or vice versa, I don't really know. But John, in his, recount, in his recounting of the event, starts with the feet. He focuses on the feet because he's focusing on Mary's humility. Uh, that, I mean, think of the least desirable part of your body. I don't... I don't know of many people, uh, which part of the body grosses people out more than their own feet, right? Uh, you know, some people are like, don't touch my feet, don't look at my feet. Uh, and add to that the fact that in this culture, people walked around in sandals on the same muddy roads that animals uh, urinated and defecated on, right? The feet, the, the foot is not the first place you want to touch, right? There's a reason we greet one another by shaking hands and not by shaking feet, Okay, feet are feet are gross um, because of where they've been and because of what they do. And this woman now, Jesus's feet probably would have been washed. A servant would have done that, uh, but this woman anoints Jesus's feet. She takes oil and pours them on Jesus's feet. And and not only that, she does something unthinkable in mixed company in front. In front of men, other than her husband, she lets her hair down out of the braid that it would have been in. That would have been uh, shocking, inappropriate for her to do. But she is so overcome with devotion to Jesus that she lets her hair down and begins wiping his feet with her hair to, to really dry up the excess oil. 
What an act of humility. True worship is humble. True worship is costly. Judas says that this ointment, this pure, expensive ointment, could have been sold for 300 denarii, 300 pieces of silver. A denarii is one day's wage. 300 was either right at or over a year's salary uh, because you didn't work on holidays, religious feasts, etc. And so what, what she pours out on Jesus is a year's wages, a year's salary. There's an interesting scene uh, at the end of 2 Samuel 24. It's really the last glimpse of David that we have. Um, King David has done something unlawful. He's made a census, and uh, there's a plague. God sends a plague on the people. Uh, And he tells David to make a sacrifice to avert the plague. And he tells him where to go and what to do. And so David David has to go up on this mountain. He has to uh, make a sacrifice at this particular threshing floor. And so as David is making his way up, the guy who owns the threshing floor sees him coming. and, And he comes out to him and he says, Hey, King David, what's going on? And King David tells him, I need to build an altar, and I need this many animals, and, it's, and I need to make a sacrifice. And so I need, your, I need your stuff. And the man who owns all of that says, well, here, it's yours. You, I'll give it to you. You can have it. Do whatever you need to do. And David says, no, I will not, sacrifice, I will not make a sacrifice that costs me nothing. I have to buy. I need to buy your property. I need to buy the equipment so I can make the altar. And I need to buy your animals. I will not make a sacrifice that cost me nothing. True worship is costly. And we, we quibble over 10%. We, we look at our income and we say, gosh, I just don't know. don't know if I can... I don't know if I can pull this off this month. Maybe we'll just see what's left in the coffers after it's done. I, I don't know. Look at Mary as she looks at Jesus. Maybe there was a moment as she held that bottle of expensive perfume worth $50,000 in her hands, a year's salary. She's looking there at it in her hands. Maybe she says, gosh, I don't know. This sure is expensive. But if she does that, we don't have it. Mary understands who it is that's in front of her. She understands the worthiness of the Lord. She realizes what the others don't. This is it. This is the last time I'm going to see him. So if I'm going to show him how much he is worth to me, now is the moment. Now is the moment to pour out my costly sacrifice so that Jesus knows his worth. So that I can show others what Jesus is worth to me. The fact that we are unable. That I have a hard time giving like Mary gave. Says something about my estimation of Jesus' worth. May we have the view that Mary and David had. That we cannot offer a sacrifice that costs us nothing. True worship is costly, and Jesus is deserving of it. True worship is rooted in love. True worship is humble. True worship is costly. 
And true worship makes a lasting impact. It says that when she did this, the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And so it wasn't localized. It was immediate that everyone in the house, everyone at the feast, they could smell what Mary had done. And Jesus says this in the other Gospels, that what Mary has done will go on. That wherever the Gospel is proclaimed, people will hear about Mary. That her sacrifice, her costly sacrifice, will go along with the Gospel. And so that other people will hear it across the world, and not only across the world, but through time. Her worship, her act of devotion and worship to Jesus will reverberate through history and into eternity. That's the nature of true worship. It makes a lasting impact. What you worship makes an impact on your children. It makes an impact on your grandchildren. It makes an impact on your neighbors. May we worship in a way that makes a lasting impact. And then, number five, true worship prioritizes. Uh, you notice what Jesus, Judas, of course, objects to what, Jesus, uh, what Mary has done, and Jesus corrects him. And then he says this in verse 8, The poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Jesus says, first things first. True worship understands what is most important. Look, there are, there are many good causes. There are many good things to which we can give ourselves, many good things uh, to which we can give our money. Jesus says, the poor you always have with you. As long as the world has fallen, until the last day when all is made right, we will have poverty, we will have hunger, we will have thirst, we will have disease... And those are worthy things to seek to alleviate. But they are not primary things. There are many good things to which we can give, uh, for which we can work, but they are not the best thing. They are not the ultimate thing. There is one who deserves our service. There is one who deserves our life. We give our money and we give ourselves, our time, our talents, to the, to the one, and everything else falls into place. First things first. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. May we give ourselves out of love, out of generosity, and sacrificially to Jesus and his kingdom. That is what true worship looks like. It's rooted in love. It's humble. It's costly, it makes a lasting impact, and it prioritizes. What about false worship? What does false worship look like? Let's look at Judas. Judas looks at Mary's gift, and he objects. He says, surely we could have given this to the poor. And then we get this little parenthesis. John tells us what Judas' real motive was. Judas's real motive was so that he wanted, he, he wanted that money in the purse so that later on he could take it out of the purse because that's what he liked to do. He was, the, uh, he was the company bookkeeper, and so he liked to enrich himself out of, out of the purse. And so here's the first thing, right? False worship 
seeks to deceive others. It hides behind a noble cause. Surely this extravagant amount of money would have been better spent somewhere else. False worship masquerades as something else. Judas is trying to hide what he really worships behind good deeds. He's using the pretense of good works to hide what he really wants, and that's money. Judas wants money. It's interesting. Uh, We don't really, we don't normally wear our idolatry on our sleeves, right? After all, that's probably why. I don't want to impugn your motives, but maybe that's why we often come to church, right? We We need to make a cover for what we really worship, and so we want to look good. We want to make sure people know that we're doing the right thing, just like Judas. Uh, we worship with our lips while our hearts are far from God. We are a people of divided loyalties. But the truth, sooner or later, will come out. It's interesting that this man, Judas, who was so keen on 300 pieces of silver will betray his master for only 30. Hungry for 300 pieces of silver, he sells at a far lower price when push comes to shove, when Jesus will not be the man he wants him to be, the Messiah he wants him to be. And so false worship seeks to deceive others, but it cannot deceive others for long, and it never deceives God. False worship seeks to exterminate that which is true. If, if, Judas, if Judas's false worship is subtle, really hiding behind good motives, the religious leaders, it's out, way out in the open. You know exactly what they want. They want it so bad, not only are they willing to kill Jesus, now they want to kill Lazarus. Because, because of Lazarus's testimony, many are leaving dead religion. Many are leaving them and coming over to Jesus. And so they say, okay, it's not enough that we kill Jesus. Now we've got to get rid of the evidence. Lazarus's testimony alone is bringing people to Jesus. So we're going to have to kill him too. False worship seeks to exterminate true worship, to exterminate that which is true And then finally, false worship rewards now, but will ultimately lead to despair. A false worship, you could say that just like like true worship, false worship is costly. It's simply a matter of what you're willing to pay. False worship is always rewarding at the moment, but it will ultimately lead to despair. Judas gets a reward for worshiping money. He gets a reward for betraying Jesus. But it cost him his soul. He actually uses the money that the Pharisees pay him to betray Jesus. He uses that money to go and buy a field and commit suicide because of his devastation. False worship leads to despair. Realizing what he had done, rather than repent, Judas despairs and commits suicide. And that's a warning. That's a warning to turn and worship what is true. To turn away from what is false. To worship 
to worship the one true God and turn away from the fruits of our idolatry before it is too late, before the fruits of our idolatry have ruined us, have ruined our children or our grandchildren. Just as the hymn says, Come, ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. For everyone in in the hearing of my voice, it is not too late to worship what is true and to abandon what is false. Be like Mary, who sees the worthiness of Jesus who's beginning to understand who Jesus is, the dying Lord, and pour out your costly sacrifice at His feet. What good will it do you to keep it? What good will your life do you? What, What good does it do a man to gain the whole world if he forfeits his soul? Give to Jesus what is rightly His, and what is rightly His is your life. So how do I come? How do I worship that which is true? Listen again to verse 8. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Do you have Jesus? Does he have you? Mary had Jesus and she worshipped. But more importantly, Jesus had Mary. He had her heart. Does Jesus have your heart? I want to close with the words uh, from the hymn written by Isaac Watts, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. An interesting note, Isaac Watts, his father, they, they li- he lived in the 1700s, uh, and his dad is what was called a nonconformist in England. What that meant was that when the king of England said, this is how you will worship, This is how the church is going to be run. This is how you worship. This is what you will preach. There were a group. We called them Puritans, right? They were called nonconformists in their day. And what they said was, no, I do not worship the king of England. I worship the king of the universe. Isaac Watts' father was one of those men, and he was imprisoned twice for his loyalty to Jesus, for his worship of Jesus. And we would be prone to say, what a waste, He sacrificed wages. He sacrificed family time. He spent it in a prison cell. What a waste. It was not a waste because it made an impact on his son who came to know Christ and who preached the gospel and who wrote this hymn. This will be our closing prayer. Let's pray together. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, My richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, 
so divine demands my soul, my life, my all. Lord Jesus, help us to be like David and Mary. Help this to be our prayer. That we see you. We survey the wondrous cross. We see you, the the Prince of Glory, died and risen again. And that we give you our lives, our souls, our all. For our eternal good and your eternal glory, we pray it in Jesus' name.